Thank you, Lisa. Hey, everybody. I feel a little bit like the kid in that Christmas movie who gets like triple dog dared to stick his tongue on the frozen pole because I should not be preaching about this. And I kind of feel like I got triple dog dared into it. Um, But I do think it's important, important thing. And I, I, um, I even can do it with Seahawks jerseys in the room. And so... Um, we're just going to have to go forward with that. I'm going to be preaching for the next three weeks on the church in society, in which I will be talking about things like government and politics and other things that make us angry, which I actually like doing, so. <laughs> um, the, one of the reasons why I'm doing this is because Last fall, we did, we, um, we actually did a thing where we just had everybody in the church put down a question they'd like to hear about, that they'd like to hear a sermon on. And we got lots of questions, we narrowed them down, people re-voted on the finalists, and we had four. I did three of those sermons last fall, and I, I kicked this one till now because um, I just thought I'd start, I preached on MLK Sunday, and I said I was going to talk about the Eric Garner and um, Michael Brown's death and things related to race that were coming up as well as other things. And I am going to do that over the next three weeks, this week and the two following. Um, so I'm doing it because it, it, the church actually asked me to preach on this. It's one of the top four questions. Second is, is that it's not close to an election right now. And so it's the best opportunity for me to preach on this and you not think that I'm like shadow campaigning for someone. Um, Three, in the 80s, actually both in the Reagan administration, there were two holidays sort of um, put forward for this moment in January. In 1983, after a few decades of, um, of pushing for this, was, um, was the first time um, a national holiday was signed into law for Martin Luther King Day. A lot of people, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't realize it was that recent. Um, but it was, it was that recent. It was first celebrated in 86. And um, one of the things that was controversial about it is, I don't know if you realize this, but there's only two other people that we have national holidays for, Christopher Columbus and George Washington. And as a nation, we chose to elevate Martin Luther King to that status. It's part, part of the Trinity, or the Holy Trinity of American history or something. Which I'm, I, I'm in favor of, but I'm just saying that, that people were like, oh, are we sure? Um, and the expense of a national public holiday, too, of course, is billions. Um, However, and then the other one is in 84, um, Ronald Reagan declared the third Sunday of January to be remembered as Sanctity of Life Sunday. They've They've been celebrated almost identically as long as each other. And both of those things essentially represent probably the two greatest human injustices that have happened in our lifetimes. And, um, they kind of come together on this week. Both of them are blood issues, Both of them are Christian issues. Both of them are fundamentally human issues. And so this is a good time to start something like this. And then lastly, um, this is, I think, how we as the church relate to society is extraordinarily timely. I'm 37 years old, which for some of you seems young and some of you seems old. And, um, but it's interesting because I'm not that old, um, objectively speaking. And a lot has changed in relationship to Christianity and our culture in my short adulthood. Um, Abortion is the forgotten crisis of our culture. We choose not to talk about it, but while we don't talk about it, 
1.3 million human children will not make it out of their mother's womb in America this year. It's just a fact. A very disproportionate number of them will be African American. And almost 90% disabled, of disabled children will not, if the parent finds out, well, that child will not make it out of their mother's womb alive. That's, that's reality. And it is an indictment on our courage that we don't talk about it because of how people will treat us. Secondly, also a blood issue, also enormously important, is that because of the deaths of Michael Brown and Erica Garner, which I consider very different incidents personally, having read pages and pages and pages about both of them, um, both of them point to something which is the issue of the non-integration of race in America. Now, you can think whatever you want about structural racism or white privilege or any of the buzzwords or catch ideas or policies that people want, but, but here is a fact, okay? The fact is, is that Martin Luther King's dream was not voting rights or the integration of public schools or that black people could sit at normal lunch counters and eat. It included all of those three things. But Martin Luther King's vision was extremely clear and extremely specific, and that was brotherhood and sisterhood. That was his dream. King's dream was the full and complete personal, social, and societal integration of all American races with each other fully. Now, we might not like, because of certain policies now, the term colorblindness. And King would never have thought that a human being can do that, probably. He was much more psychologically sophisticated than that. But the idea that we would, it would seem that way if somebody observed us, because we all treated each other kindly and lovingly and included everybody and everything, no matter where they were from or what they looked like, that was his dream. And that, friends, on no accounting has happened. Just hasn't happened. And that's a problem. And because it hasn't happened, a lot of other problems have festered and grown, and they just come to light when things like Eric Gardner's death happens. I would classify that as a killing, personally. But, but there's, there's also a lot more than that. It's not just those two things. Religious liberty in America is, is different than when I was a kid. The third sermon in this series that Lloyd and I will co-preach together, I'll give you just a laundry list over just the last couple of years of Christian kids that were told they couldn't hand out a flyer for a church function at school, even though all the other clubs could. Um, a family in Pennsylvania that had to pay $12,000 in damages to a lesbian couple for discrimination and psychological pain they suffered because they chose not to make their barn available for that. There's, of course, the flower case from Colorado, the photography fake case. And I, I mean, I just go on and on and on and on and on. The case in Washington right now with the lady, um, the, the flower business, it's not that a person from a particular movement has sued them. The district attorney of the state of Washington has sued her and gone after her personal assets, including her home, for not providing flowers for a gay wedding, even though offers 
for flowers already paid for were offered for free from many other flower shops. Doctors who believe that there are two patients when a woman is pregnant and therefore it is to harm a patient to perform an abortion therefore can't do so according to conscience unless the life of the mother is imminently physically in danger. Their right to conscience has been openly questioned in states in America and in certain places and whether or not they should be people like that should be performing medicine. And it's very easy to, sort of, to blow some of these things out of proportion percentage-wise. But a number of these cases, the reason they didn't go forward is because there was public outcry and people stepped back. A good example of this was in Houston when the, the mayor of Houston demanded that the pastors in Houston hand in their sermons so what they had said about her and her policies could be examined. Which that subpoena was only backed down on when there was this enormous public outcry and they just, she just had to. But what... What people want to do and what happened when things, these things got sorted out in court aren't the same thing and what they want to do demonstrates a direction. Religious freedom in terms of conscience and exercise has changed a lot since I was young and its, and its change is increasing in its rapidity. The change is happening faster and faster every year. Fourth is the failing experiment of disestablishment. And I'm just not going to explain that because it took me about six minutes last sermon and I just don't have time for that. So it just is what it is. Um, the accelerating marginalization of Christian faith. That is that the standing of somebody who has a actually biblical worldview in our society is increasing its marginalization and is doing so increasingly rapidly. It's not just a line, it's a curve. Um, six, there is a very significant gro growing climate of incivility. Jamie Smith, a uh, philosopher at Calvin College, has said, civility is the holiness of secularity. That is, being a good person in secularity, one of the basis of that good personness is civility. And if that's true, then secular society has as big a holiness problem as we do. Maybe not that bad, but pretty bad. Um, that's partly because I've read articles on the church sort of panicking because churches are shrinking. Listen, churches aren't shrinking anywhere near as fast as purchased news, okay? Print is absolutely disappearing. The funds used for journalism is going away, and so it's created what I would just call the Jerry Springerization of, of the media. Fewer news shows, more opinion shows, more aggressive opinions stated by people who are entirely ignorant of what they're talking about. Um, it's ridiculous. And it's producing a climate in which polarizing, um, people are moved in polarizing directions and the, the sense of, of legitimacy in stigmatizing another person for holding a particular view is just becoming much more normalized. So somebody can hold a view and it's okay for you to hate them in our immensely and wonderfully tolerant society. That is just hypocrisy beyond the scale. And it's just, it's just everywhere. And I don't, it may be declining in the church, some of the ways we do it, it, but it is increasing, I think, in the culture at large. Seven, coercive expertization of liberty. I, I don't know if you've realized this, but I am no longer one of the high priests of culture. Christian pastors, 
Nobody's listening to me, which is fine. It's pro- they're probably better off. But there are new high priests in American culture, and it is macroeconomists and psychologists. And you are expected to live your life according to their inerrant revelation. Policies and regulations and laws and how you're supposed to raise your children and what's considered abusive and not abusive and what is necessary for the—all of that is coming from the two places in academics culture that are the most unreliable in terms of their findings. You just, you just ask somebody in social sciences, especially in macroeconomics and in psychology and sociology, how hard it is in those two fields to get everybody on the same page. I mean, it's like discussing literary theory, friends. It's, I mean, I mean, we can't even agree on what happened in 2008 economically after the fact, much less before it. And yet, because religion is sort of gone and we have a naked public square, something has to direct us. And it's not philosophical morality. Therefore, it has to be pragmatics. What works? Well, what are the fields that tell us what works? There's only three. Macroeconomics for globalization, management for how people should be treated, and psychology for what creates whatever we arbitrarily label as human flourishing. They are the new high priests. We are expected to live according to it. And there are increasing numbers of laws and expectations that we'll do what we're told, even when their findings explicitly disagree with the Bible and what it teaches. And then in addition to that, there are flat-out global environmental issues and structural financial issues that we just don't want to deal with. And make no mistake, that is a moral and character issue. It is a moral and character issue, and therefore it relates to the church, and it relates to the society, and it relates to everyone. And our inability to deal with these things that have been around since I was a kid, both of them, demonstrates certain things that we should know about government by now, and social society by now, and ourselves by now. And then, just the cherry on top of all of that is an enormous resurgent in militant Islam globally, which we haven't seen the likes of probably since, you know, a few hundred years ago. And um, this is all happening right now. And the reason why I say this is because if you're here, you have basically grown up in a world, if you're American and you're from sort of America— and not from one of the seven most violent zip codes in our urban areas, but some anywhere else in America. You have grown up in a place that is essentially Christian respecting and relatively stable. When, when was the last time you fled because people with AK-47s were coming to kill and rape you, right? I haven't done that once. I'm 37. I haven't even been in a fist fight. Start one with me, Paul. I'm going to lose that one. Start one with me, Abby. Um, We have lived all of our lives in this stable society, which basically has the rule of law, which, right, and in a place where Christian devotion was even before my generation, not that long ago, decently respected. There was a time in my lifetime that we didn't assume people in ministry were pedophiles. Right? I mean, that was not that long ago. 
right? And so we may have grown a little soft, friends. You read the Bible, and these are people who are like, it says in the book of Hebrews, you rejoiced at the, anybody know how that ends? You rejoiced at the plundering of your possessions. Somebody came and took away their home, took away everything that they had out of persecution and a sense of legitimacy because the Christians were disenfranchised. They just took what they wanted because they're Roman. And those people's response to that wasn't just that they got through, but they rejoiced, right? Paul and, or not Paul, Peter and, and John get whipped, publicly humiliated, bleeding, scarred. And what does the Bible say the response to it is in the early chapters of Acts? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. See, we can say what we want about society and blah, 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 blah. But here's the, th- here, here's the thing I think we need to first face about our society. Our society has been a pillow hold for all, most of our lives. Okay? And we are emotional and character wusses. And just look at how people like, how they respond when religious liberty gets attacked or something, you get one or two responses. Either people freak out and be like, we gotta protect ourselves! Or they go, oh, it's no big deal because they can't deal with it. That it's something they actually have a moral responsibility to do something about. It's not clear, consistent, courageous, but humble action that is appropriate and fitting what they should do. It's basically everything but that. And that's a character issue for us. We gotta move on. Oh, wrong button. So over the next three weeks, we're gonna talk about this. I'm gonna try to lay a framework of society and church and how the two relate. Generally speaking today, I'm gonna talk much more specifically about that next week. And then the third week, Lloyd and I are gonna select 10 or 12 very specific applications of this and co-preach the sermon and bounce it back and forth. Um, today, I just want to ask these three questions from a Christian perspective. What is society and society as, re- as related to government? What is the church in relationship to society? And how do the two relate? So first, let me talk about 11 things the Bible says about our relationship to government and society. The reason why I'm going to talk about this relationship to government and society is because in Western cultures at this time, government is an enormous part of society. It's arguably the largest part of society that's ever been in the history of the world. It doesn't necessarily have more control than ever in the history of the world. But you know, ancient kings could only do so much. You know what I mean? They couldn't help but leave a lot of people alone. Government is more a part of social and societal life than it's ever been. Think about if you're my age or older, just think about when you were a kid, how many things have been regulated in some way legally since then? Right? Can't even count. Okay, in case you miss civics, society is generally talked about in three parts. One is the individual, the smallest building block of society, right? One person. And then the second part is basically what's sometimes called civil society, which is basically all the ways human beings organize themselves that isn't authoritative and coercive. It's you're a part of it because you want to be a part of it. 
right? So this would be marriages and families. This would be voluntary, voluntary societies of education and so on. Um, professional societies, guilds. Unions are a gray area, but under Act 10, they're voluntary, right? Churches. Edmund Burke said, all the interesting parts of society. Okay? But then human beings have recognized for most of our existence that you can't allow everything in life to simply function under voluntary action because people are going to fail you when you need the most and people are going to do stupid things that you need to stop. You can't make living up to the law don't kill people voluntary. Right? There's certain laws that you need to institute and something has to be able to authoritatively and coercively institute those things. And if somebody attacks us, like another country tries to invade, you can't go through and pick people out voluntarily. You've got to have some kind of means by which you can raise an army and fight, and it's a coercive, mandatory responsibility for people to defend us, and so on. Now, obviously the question is, how many things fit that category? Right? That's what people have been arguing about for quite a while. The point is, is that there are three parts of them, and the two institutions that the Bible specifically refers to in institutes are in the middle one, which is why it is always relevant to those institutions when the one on the far right and the one on the far left expands dramatically, right? With a disestablishment expansion of the space for the individual to do whatever they want, what has happened to the voluntary institution of marriage? I would argue not good things, right? With expansion of government, for example, what has happened to philanthropy in America since the New Deal? It's hollowed out. Voluntary, voluntary philanthropy, since the government took control of it, has huge proportions of it in America have just disappeared because we've now delegated it to people that'll do it for us, right? Whenever one of these expands, human life generally is what it is, and so one of the other ones contracts. Now, you might think that I'm trying to convince you to be a conservative in a very sly kind of way, which might be true. I probably should admit that, okay? It might be true. I'll explain next week why our political ideology should be smaller than we think and how all three of the major American ones are useful to us, okay? But— King actually believed this. When he was 20 years old and going to Crozier Seminary, I'm reading a biography of his right now, um, he became deeply frustrated with capitalism because though scholars like Thomas Sowell have written later that blacks were actually advancing faster before than after some of the civil rights legislation, and that I think is empirically true in certain sectors, what King actually saw with his own eyes was he went to work for a railroad company and he saw black people working and being paid a certain amount and white people working and being paid a certain amount and it wasn't the same and they were doing the same thing. And that seemed to be perpetuating just fine under capitalism and therefore when people said the market fixes its problems, his response was Bologna. <laughs> right? And so he became very disenfranchised with the idea of capitalism as a system of market forces that would correct themselves in free exchange. So he spent basically a summer reading up on Marxism. He read Nietzsche first, and then he read Marx. And after reading a number of Marx treatises and going through Das Kapital and reading a bunch of people, right, he realized that he couldn't be that either. Because looking to the state for what he wanted would inevitably produce a totalitarianism, which was a Christian heresy. 
the desire to create a brotherhood of all people in which all people were fundamentally equal, he said that was in some sense a Christian idea, at least the brotherhood part of it. But in order to do so, the idea that the ends justify the means and you can do what you want to get outcomes you think are good is absolutely heresy. The idea that God is not sovereign over history, but instead economic and sociological forces explain everything, he was like, you can't accept that. And in addition to that, um, he said, he said what communism does in reality is creates a new class structure and a new set of instabilities and a new set. And anybody who's a little older than 28 who remembers being alive when the USSR was going to kill us, kill us, and if you read about what happened to Christians in places like Romania and Bulgaria, you have some memory of that, right? That's why people my age are a little cons- concerned when things are like, oh, let's just do whatever. And we're like, whoa, I remember communism, Right? If you don't remember Reagan, you probably don't know anything about this. Just in terms of time, not in terms of president, okay? So what King realized was his hope was actually in civil society. Because though economics and the free market was essentially part of civil society in the exchange of commerce, civil society had everything else too. Churches, families, voluntary societies, and they functioned on the basis of what they believed was right, what they wanted to do, what they believed should be done. And so the reformation of things could come through the other parts of civil society if they were gathered, if they received a conscience, and if they were marshaled in the right direction, and could produce both economic justifications And it could call the government to get involved where it should, i.e. specific civil rights legislation which upheld the laws the country supposedly already had. And I'm pretty sure if Martin was here, he'd be voting Democrat. Okay? So I don't think this argument is political. I think it's just civics. Now, let me tell you 11 things the Bible says. This might be a little bit fire hydrant-y, but we'll see how it goes. And yes, I'm leaving stuff out. Um, and I'm just doing this because I know my Bible decently well, and most, most of you probably can't hunt your way through and put these things together, so I'm trying to put these things together for you. That's why I'm doing this, okay? One is God's law and, and rule stands over all people, not just people who have received the Bible. Okay, a simple proof for that in Scripture, one example would be in Isaiah 10 to 24, where Isaiah steps forward and actually prophesies judgment on lots of places, none of which are Israel or Judah. Tyre, Sidon, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, all these places that don't have Bibles. And he preaches against their injustice and their idolatry. That is, if Isaiah is a real prophet, and I believe he is because he's in the Bible— People who don't have Bibles because of natural revelation and the conscience of humanity, the way God has created us, we do know better than idolatry and injustice, and therefore we are accountable for it. And so whether or not you have a Bible, you should know that enslaving other people is wrong. You should know that treating some people one way and other people another way is wrong. You should know that. And so therefore God's rule and reign of law and truth is over all peoples. And he can bless some, and he can, and he can punish others, and he can work how he seeks, sees fit sovereignly over the course of history, and nobody could say, you can't, you can't talk to us like that. And what that also means is we can talk to them like that. Now, not like we know what God is doing in his sovereign providence. 
But to say, this is wrong, and even though you're not a Christian, it's still wrong, is something that God does. And to a certain extent, in terms of persuading in relationship to moral clarity, we have the right and responsibility to do it as well. Oops, sorry, that was only the first one. Secondly, government cannot be the main seat of human justice. And I'll put it together with three. Government is a devourer as well as a provider. One of the texts of scripture that the founding fathers of America quoted again and again in their writings was this one from 1 Samuel 8. The Jews had received the law and they had functioning courts. And it was God's intention that they would live as a city on a hill as a moral people of laws, that they would be good people. They had a law and they had courts and that really ought to be enough to govern them. And they come to Samuel, who is the prophet, who doesn't have coercive authority He only has persuasive authority. That's what a prophet is, right? The prophet speaks for God, and it's the truth, and he can't make you do anything about it. But he can tell you the truth, and he can say, God stands behind this, and you do what you want with it. And see, that's what Samuel was. They didn't have a king. They only had a prophet. They didn't have somebody who could coerce them to do something. They just had somebody who could tell them what to do, and then they had to freely choose to do it. That was the system of government God had set up for his people. And they came to Samuel, and they said, we want a king. Like, and they say this, like all the other nations around us, we want somebody who will lead us in a battle and take responsibility for our defense. And there's two points that God makes in this passage. And I believe these points are humanly universal. One is, God says, when they chose that, Samuel, they didn't reject, reject you, they rejected me as their leader. That is, God's intention was that the Jewish people would, who had a law, would be a moral and free people themselves, and therefore would not require someone to coerce them. If you are a people who requires someone to coerce you to do what's right, and you create for yourself a government, what can you expect honestly from that government? Right? That's why John Adams said, And I think Benjamin Franklin said, a number of people said, we have created a system of government for a good and religious people. It is completely unable to rule any other kind. And the reason they made that kind of government is because they believed that was the only kind there was that could be good. The second is, God commanded Samuel to tell the people, the Jewish people, exactly what their new government would do for them, besides lead them into battle. And the passage is really frustrating because basically what Samuel says is he's going to take everything from you. Yes, he's going to lead you into battle, but he's going to do it after he takes all your sons to be his soldiers. And he's going to take them into battle to fight the wars he sees fit to fight. And he's going to take part of the food that you grow. And he's going to take your daughters. And he's going to take this, and he's going to take your servants, and he's going to take— and he is going to—he's going to devour, not provide for you. Now, and all the conservatives said amen, and then we went to the next slide, because you, you flip over to Romans 13, and what does it say? Government is a good gift of God's grace for our good, that he gives out of his pleasure to sustain us and protect us so that the evildoer should be punished and the one who does right should be commended and we should submit to the government in all ways possible. We should give the government taxes, respect what it demands from us within the scope of its authority 
and we should be found to be among the most model citizens of any culture we find ourselves in. And Paul writes that when there is an incredibly oppressive Roman emperor who is marginalizing and hurting Christians systematically. Now, you got to be careful to push that too far. Because in Letter from Birmingham Jail, King was especially upset at churches who used that as a reason to uphold segregation. They said the Bible says we're supposed to uphold the authority of law and government. And King was like, yeah, but you might— you might also consider some other things as well, right? I'll talk about some, maybe some of that more stuff next week when I talk about the church's voice in these things. But that's a modifying idea. How far you take Romans 13 is modified by other ideas. But the general idea that applies to all of us that we have to accept first is, even though what Samuel said is absolutely true, this is true also. Because it's still better than anarchy. It's better than the book of Joshua, and especially Judges, where it says, in those days men did whatever they pleased. You know, things didn't go well then either. That was like the libertarian heaven, right? The book of Judges. It didn't go well, okay? Yeah, I know, we've got more technology now, it would work. Whatever, okay? But like, and so the the Bible's very clear-headed about these things, okay? Let's go to the next one, or we'll just get stuck. Um, God in the gospel demands no single system of government. I've read the Quran through four times. I've read most of the Hadiths. One of the, diffi- one of the reasons Islam has difficulty in the world is because Islam is a nation-building religion in its inception and by its nature. And so it's very difficult for Muslims that are very devout to live in countries where, they're, where they don't have control of the system of government because Islam partly is a system of government. That's why it has a Sharia. That's why it has all these things. And so it's very difficult for devout Muslims to figure out how to live in societies. Because Islam is not designed to contextualize into a society. It's designed to help a society by ruling it. Okay? Christianity is absolutely the opposite in this thing. There is no system of government demanded by Christianity. Christianity is 100% contextualizable to any system of government. And that's why it has survived and thrived in every kind totalitarian dictatorships under communism, kings and queens, parliamentary system, socialist democracies, and so on. Socialist democracy, it's done the worst, but that's because it became part of the government. Not a good idea, generally speaking. And so no Christian can say, well, we're Christians. We believe in this kind of government. No, the government we believe in is someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to be king. That's the government we believe in, okay? The government we believe in now— we can, live, we can live with any government. We can be Christians with any government. Now, we may probably all have opinions on which ones are better, and I certainly do. You might think I'm opinionated. I'll tell you, there are a hundred, for every opinion I share, there are a hundred I don't. Okay? It's hard to fathom, right? But the Bible prescribes no particular system of government. Six, God has spread people among the nations. He hasn't clustered them in a single nation. It is actually God's intention that we would be in a disenfranchised minority because there's only so many of us and we have to be everywhere. Why? Because we're chasing all of humanity to the ends of the earth. Because we're ambassadors to them. And so we can't have one Christian nation. We have to be dispersed among them all. And so there is no Christian nation and there won't be one probably. Because we are meant to disperse ourselves among the nations to be ambassadors for the gospel. Can't talk more about that right now. 
7, God does concern himself with nations. If you read the whole Bible, you just can't get away from this. God is, is God primarily interested in individuals? I suppose it all depends on what you mean by that. Yes, in most formulations of it. But human beings pay attention to what happens to peoples and movements. And so God attains glory for himself and humbles the human creature when nations rise and fall. Because nations have ethoses, and they do commit themselves to ideologies, and they move in certain directions, and they try certain experiments, and some of them radically fail because they completely misunderstand human nature. I would argue the USSR was an example of this. God humbled the human creature through the disillusionment of that nation because it was built on a fundamental fallacy about what a human being is and how we can function together. We may be engaging in one of those experiments ourselves. I don't know. For sure. But God does, in many cases in the Bible, speak in terms of that he raises up kingdoms, he brings them down, they're in his hands, he does it for his own glorifications, for the purpose of his providence, and to humble human creatures. Here's where we get awry in this. When we act like we know exactly what God is doing when and we pronounce it. Right? Oh, I know why that hurricane hit Haiti. Uh, oh, you know what? Shut your mouth. Just take the mouth and just do that. Okay? Right? I better keep moving, right? I was done with that one, right? Oh, no. Yeah, okay. Eight. Christians are supposed to be supportive of all the people and members of government whenever they can, as much as they can. Take this from 1 Timothy chapter 2. If you read the first several verses, Paul says, listen, I want you to pray for everybody. The guy who has the warrant for your arrest, I want you to pray for him the police officer that throws you in jail, the person who racially profiles you, who is a member of the government and it's their job to do what's right, you pray for them because power is enormously corrupting. Public policy is a thousand times more difficult to write than you probably think. Being a politician and doing what's right is beyond difficult. Trying to, trying to herd a bunch of cats together, and even on, the, even on the smaller city or even neighborhood level, is impossible. I just got a lever from my neighborhood association. My neighborhood association. They can't find one person to serve as a, like a, an officer for the whole thing. They're like, we're going to fold. I'm like, I don't go to anything anyway. Nobody cares, right? I mean, yet, politicians are supposed to care. I mean, where they're supposed to be doing stuff for the, right? It's extremely difficult. All positions of management, all positions of authority, all, all people who hold coercive and deadly power in their hands are doing a job with terrible consequences that is enormously difficult and that is deeply thankless. And you want to have really bad cops? You humiliate that profession. You want to have really bad politicians? You let people just destroy everybody that's in public life and their children, and we'll get great people running for office. Right? You want to have the most idiotic people writing public opinion? You just, you just go along with the dramatic chastisement of anybody who says anything that's outside of the line they're supposed to say. The, what the Bible says is, if, especially if you don't like President Obama, you should pray for him every day. You should set an alarm on your watch that goes off so you can pray for President Obama. And you should pray in the Supreme Court, especially the justices you don't like. 
I should, I should be praying for Ruth Bader Ginsburg every day. Right? And the sheriff and the police chief and the fire chief and the, like, and maybe you just, you like, you put them all together on the prayer list and you're like, God, I pray, I pray for all the public officials. You, but, but do something because their job is a lot harder than you think it is. And they're probably not as bad as you think they are. And they're probably worse than you think they are. It's just, that's just life. And so you should be praying for them because it doesn't matter if you agree with them. You can still pray for them. You pray that they would do what's just and right and they would see the truth and that they would act on it and so on. Anyway. Nine, sometimes we have to disobey the government and society and any other ruling authority. Even parents. There is a limit to the authority of the authorities that God institutes. There's two places in Acts where the apostles are told, you can't talk about Jesus, and they say, you're just going to have to decide whether or not we should, we should believe and obey you or God. And it turns out that was a rhetorical question because there's no answer in the Bible. Um, and the answer is, of course, we're going to obey God and not you. And the only, the only actually example in the Bible of disobedience to the governing authorities is the right to tell people about Jesus. That's the only one. When whoever the king is says, you can't tell people about the greater king, we go, yeah, I, I can't do that. But whenever that's done, there's, there's three parts that is always done. You can see this in the Apostle Paul. One, he disobeys them, right? Two, he accepts the legal penalty. He doesn't start a riot and try to get him killed or anything. He doesn't even try to get him fired. There's one guy who tries to kill himself and he saves his life. Remember that? Gets him whipped, throws him in prison, doesn't tend his wounds. He's like bleeding out of his, like you could probably see a couple of his ribs. He's hanging in chains, bleeding. God sends an earthquake, opens all the doors up of all the prisoners. The, the guy who's in charge of prison goes to kill himself, and Paul, hanging in his chains, goes, the door's open, right? He goes, yeah, don't hurt yourself. We're fine. Just come in here and like take charge of us, prisoners. Right? And then the guy comes in and he's terrified and he asks what he has to do to be saved and he gets baptized and he tends their wounds. But like that's not how that started. That started like he was going to kill himself and Paul could have been like, you better you go to hell. You should kill yourself right now. That sounds like a good idea. That's not what he did. But he wasn't totally passive because in every case, Paul speaks persuasively at the injustice of the imprisonment itself. Is it right for you to whip a Roman citizen without a trial? Should you be doing this to me? Is it moral to suppress people? Is this right what you're doing? So he tells people about Jesus, but he also speaks at the immorality of the subjugation and the disenfranchisement and the pushing down and the— he speaks at that too, right? That's our job. And the last two is Jesus is higher than government. His kingdom is a greater society. I don't know if that's self-explanatory or not. And last is the temporal fate of Christians is bound to the temporal fate of non-Christians in the society in which they live. I've preached about this a number of times. We are dispersed among all people. Our crime rate and their crime rate is going to be about the same. Our economic advantage and their economic advantage is going to be about the same. Whether or not we enter into a degrading financial crisis or not is going to be about the same. Did, Christ, did, did any Christians lose their job in the financial collapse of 2008? Probably not, right? Because God protected us and blessed us, right? Did that? No? Yeah, no, right? 
right? And no Christian's houses get broken into, right? No Christians ever get murdered. And no, right? Of course not. God in his providence has dispersed us among all people and has tied our fates to theirs. And so in Jeremiah 29, it says, pray for the city and live for its peace and its prosperity. Because as it goes, so will you. Why? why? Well, one of the reasons is probably because we're so selfish (laughs) that if the city only prospers, if we're already going to prosper, and the city only prospers if we help it, to hell with the city. Literally. That's That's what we're really like. And so God lovingly probably disciplines us by tying our fate to theirs. But in addition, we're meant to be dispersed among them, right? So I gotta, I gotta get rolling here and we're on point two. So um, the definition of what is the church then? Like, what do we use as our metaphor? Do we use that we're, um, like, the, like the people of Israel, they were, they were triumphant. Like, they ruled, they were in charge of the government. Is that—what in the Bible are we like? Are we like the the Hebrews in Egypt? Right? Are we like the Hebrews when they had their own country? Are we like when they were in exile? Like, what—is there a biblical metaphor for our relationship to society and government? And the answer is yes. The problem is it sort of depends on your situation. Right? So, for example, for 200 years— what was the metaphor of the African-American church that they selected from the Old Testament about what they were like in the, uh, as the people of God in the Bible in a relationship to society and government? Right? It was the exodus. It was the slavery in Egypt. It was coming out. It was the metaphor of liberation from segregation and subjugation to coming out to God delivering. The day of deliverance is coming, Right? Meanwhile, there's a lot of evangelicals—well, not a lot, but there's some evangelicals that essentially want to use the metaphor of, like, being large and in charge, like, you know, Israel in, the, in Israel. But the one that actually the New Testament writer uses in, in Peter, Peter is exile, that the people of God are dispersed among the pagan nations and live among them, share their culture and society, are meant to be fully integrated and yet not assimilated, Right? But it's not totally the metaphor of exile because in the metaphor of exile, there's this idea that it's judicial, that the reason that we're dispersed among the nations is because God is judging us. We did something wrong. And so we're stuck among the nations until God comes back and brings that moment of exodus. That's not how the New Testament looks at it. We're exiles in that we are among the peoples. We're exiles in that we're among a people that don't share our, our spiritual and ontological identity as belonging to Christ, but we were not sent there judicially. We were sent there as ambassadors. We were sent to make a place our home and to be part of its well-being and good. We, our, our environment is that of an exile, but our purpose is that of an ambassador. And you can see this in a number of, Old Te- of New Testament passages, that we're strangers scattered throughout the world, but yet we're God's chosen, that he selected us in his providence to be there. In 2 Corinthians, he says, um, God has chosen us to give us a, me- a message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his, his appeal through us, meaning God is making an appeal of redemption to all of humanity in Christ, and we're his ambassadors. Right? And then in 1 Peter, it says, live such good lives where? Locationally. Among the pagans, 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now there's two ways to interpret that verse. One is that you act really awesome. People who will accuse you of stuff, who don't like you, and then when God comes, they'll have to realize that he's glorious and then they'll go to hell. Or you could read the verse temporally that it's moving along in in, in terms of a scope of time, that you're going to live among the pagans, they're going to accuse you of being a bigot, right? You're going to live beautifully in front of them. And over time, by the time God comes back, they're going to glorify him, meaning meaning they're going to believe and trust in him and belong to him, and they're going to worship him. That is, it's going to have a good effect. Why? Because you're going to live among them to live and act and speak persuasively so they can be part of the redemption mandate so they can start to relive out the creation mandate. The last thing, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna work this out. I'm just gonna read this to you, and this is what I'm gonna preach on next week. I'm gonna work out this definition. So what is the church in society? What is the church as it relates to society and government? And this is the definition as best as I can put it together. The church is... Exile ambassadors witnessing to and embodying the redemptive message of Christ applied to the creation mandate in pursuit of goodness and uprightness and peace through the pursuit of justice and righteousness. I'll work that out next week. But let's end with um, a couple concrete applications to take with you right now, okay? So like, it's only 90 minutes left. Um, One is that we, would ha- we as Christians would so believe in Jesus as king and our identity so much in him and not in our political ideology or even our own citizenship that we would have no stars in our eyes in relationship to any political or so- social ideology. I think that's really important. I think there's a lot of us that are hurt in many ways by being too captured by social and political philosophies and ideologies. And we should be less so captured, and those should be subjugated to a renewed mind in the gospel of Jesus. Second is, we need to prepare ourselves to do the work of an ambassador exile, and that's going to look something like thankless service. You, you need, to, some people will like you and some people won't. You can't do anything about that. You can only be who you are and what you're meant to be because that's the right thing and because that honors God and because that's who you are and what we're meant to be together. And we will serve and sacrifice ourselves for the good of the whole city, for their peace and prosperity. We will fully integrate, but we will never assimilate and we will love our neighbor as ourself so that they would experience prosperity and peace in every way possible. And in so doing, we will bear witness to Christ so hopefully they will glorify God on the day he visits us. You have to not hope in this world in order to give hope to this world. One of the reasons King rejected communism was because communism, the communist writers, especially Marx and Engels, believed that the only way to bring hope to this world is to have no hope in another one. 
Religion was the opiate of the masses. It was, a, it was a slave morality. And the only way to take hold of life and to make it what it was meant to be is to get rid of this view of God or some other world where things are gonna turn out okay. King rejected that because all it had produced in his lifetime was slaves. But in addition to that, it didn't make any sense. The person willing to lay down their one fleeting life in a moment of lo- losing all things in this world was all the more likely a person who believed in another one. The one who would defy the king is most likely the one who believes there's a higher one. And it says in Hebrews that the great mark of faith in Abraham was that he was able to live in a foreign country like he was an exile ambassador because he believed in another country. He was able to live in his city and to build his city because he believed in another city whose builder and maker was God. And so he had nothing to lose and he could burn his life to ashes and do anything in service of others because he had nothing to lose and only to gain because when he served the city in which he was put, he pleased the one who was king of the real kingdom. And that has to get really clear You cannot believe in Jesus as your little savior. You can't, that's not gonna get us from here to there. That's not gonna make us uncushy. That's not gonna help us live and thrive in a world in which Christianity is marginalized and stability may be lost. We have to have down in our bones, not just that we like Jesus and maybe he forgave our sins and let's play some more Xbox. We have to be the kind of people that believe so deeply in King Jesus and the kingdom rule of God that will come so that we can serve all people. In order to do that, we have to listen to the place where Jesus says, you better count what that's going to cost. You better get really clear-headed about what it's going to take to be the sort of person for whom Jesus is King and Lord, who can truly be together with others, exile ambassadors in a world, whatever world you find yourself in, a world of unprecedented new prosperity or of great instability, where we have incredible moral leadership and persuasive power or where we're utterly disenfranchised and marginalized, whichever world we find ourselves in, you had better count the cost in relationship to probably the most expensive one. Otherwise, your construction job might run over and you won't be ready for that. But when you count how much it's going to cost, if you see Jesus for anything like what he is, the only king who will ever be truly just, who will ever really bring lasting peace, who himself is instituting a kingdom that, is, that invites all people, that he demanded that the price of his blood would be that it would purchase men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue so that his heaven would be the most humanly integrated place ever dreamed of, that it is that king that makes the real cost whatever you pay, what Paul called light and momentary troubles in comparison to the glory that awaits. Let's pray. Father, as we, um, uh, as, as we reflect on this and as we try to respond to it, 
Um, we pray that you'd help us to see clearly about how to, how to love and live and be in the society in which we find ourselves. We want to be a blessing to them in all kindness and in all truth, in all graciousness. We want to be the exiled ambassadors that integrate but never assimilate, but live for the peace, good, and prosperity of our city, seeing our society and government and its institutions for what they are, and yet embracing them and seeing them both as limited and good, embracing what we are meant to, submitting to its authority, and living as ordered and peaceable people, yet who advocate strongly in places where things must be improved and corrected and righted, and we pray that you'd help us to do it and know what to do as the church and as your people in a way that is courageous and humble. We pray that you'd help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.